man who knows his place and his position and remains in it through thick and thin is a man of honor. Such a man is worth a great deal and is worth a great deal of honor, even if he does not occupy the highest position. The novelist J.R.R. Tolkien served as an officer in World War I and apparently drew his inspiration for the character Sam Gamgee in the trilogy Lord of the Rings from the private soldier who was assigned to him to serve as his servant, or to use the British parlance, his Batman. And so apparently there was this, this private soldier who was, who was assigned to, uh, to J.R.R. Tolkien in World War I, and Tolkien observed this, this man how he was very dutiful, just doing what he was supposed to do. And this fellow apparently became the inspiration for, uh, for Sam Gamgee, Frodo's companion on the journey to Mount Doom in The Lord of the Rings. And even though Sam Gamgee and the, the Batman who served Tolkien may have been playing second fiddle, so to speak, their faithfulness to the task at hand was important and worth remembering. And this morning as we turn our attention to John Chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, we will likewise see a faithful and steadfast servant in the person of John the Baptist. Like Tolkien's Batman and Sam Gamgee, John was a man who knew his place. He knew his role. His job was not to take glory and honor and authority unto himself. His role, rather, was to serve as a friend to the bridegroom and prepare the way for Jesus John the Baptist was not going to get caught up in a popularity contest as if he were somehow competing with Jesus. Rather, his job and his joy was to point people to Jesus. And he rejoiced when people followed Jesus, even if they weren't following him. So let's look to the text. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, beginning verse 22. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says... After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of earth is from earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, as we consider this text this morning, we will do so under two main headings. First, humble yourself, and secondly, set your seal that God is true. So, number one, humble yourself, and number two, set your seal that God is true. First, though, we ought to, to take a look at the, the setting and the timestamp, as it were, which John gives to us here. The Apostle John tells us that after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, we've seen so far in the Gospel of John how John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how Jesus began interacting with his first disciples, how he interacted with, with Andrew and this other unnamed disciple, and Andrew called his brother Peter, how Jesus called Philip, and Philip in turn went to Nathaniel. We saw how he performed the uh, miracle, changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, We've seen how Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover and how he cleansed the temple on that occasion and performed many signs and subsequently how he spoke to Nicodemus, as we saw earlier here in chapter 3. And now John tells us it's after these things that Jesus and his disciples came out into the countryside of Judea, spending time with them and is baptizing. We should note, however, that the baptism of Jesus was being performed by the disciples of Jesus and not by Jesus personally, as John tells us in a parenthetical aside later on in chapter 4, verse 2. The Gospel writer John also tells us here that in those days, John the Baptist was also in the Judean countryside baptizing, specifically in Anon near Salem. And he's baptizing there because there is much water, presumably a reference to the fact that the mode by which John was baptizing was, in fact, immersion. And we find there... In verse 23, that we've entered into this unique situation in which, at this point, both Jesus and John the Baptist are baptizing the disciples. Jesus' disciples are baptizing disciples for Jesus, and John the Baptist is baptizing as well. And this fact, then, sets the stage for the discussion that follows in verses 26 through 30 between John and his disciples. Now, the truth of verse 24 might seem like a no-brainer. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Obviously, if John is free and is baptizing people, he's not yet put in prison. And since we know from the the other Gospels that John was executed by King Herod during the course of his imprisonment, then it's very clear and obvious that these events spoken of here must necessarily have taken place before John gets put into prison and subsequently executed. Nothing surprising in any of that when we think about it. But nevertheless, this is helpful in terms of giving us a timestamp on the things that John has already told us about here in the course of Jesus' earthly ministry. What this means then is that these events that John has been recording here, John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus is the Lamb of God and and everything up through this point in chapter 3 happened prior to Jesus' ministry in Galilee that we're told about in Mark chapter 1. Because in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, when Jesus begins doing that, we're told explicitly in Mark chapter 1 that when Jesus began that ministry of proclamation, it was after John 
had been put into prison. And so these events in the, the early chapters of the Gospel of John occur prior to the ministry of Jesus that occurred and is described in the Synoptic Gospels. And so this is, this is the prequel, as it were, of Jesus' ministry that, that we see in the Synoptic Gospels. These things happen prior to the imprisonment of John the Baptist, prior to that Galilean ministry of Jesus that we read about there in Mark chapter 1. And so John gives us the setting then in which these things happen. And he tells us then in verse 25 about this conversation between John's disciples and this Jew on the question of purification. Now, the gospel writer doesn't give us specific details about the conversation, so we don't know exactly what the question was. We don't know exactly what assertions were made on one side or the other. It's possible that this was a discussion concerning the relationship between John's baptism and more traditional Jewish modes and methods of purification, or perhaps the question also included something about the relationship between John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism that was being administered by Jesus. We don't know for sure because John didn't tell us what the particular question was, and so we have to be content to uh, allow our ignorance to to be okay with uh, the lack of details. But whatever the question was, it seems that this question led directly then to the conversation that they proceeded to have with John. So John's disciples are having this question and conversation with some Jew. And then immediately after that, they they come to John and they begin talking about what is happening. And so in verse 26, we have this simple statement of the facts that are happening on the ground. John's disciples come to him. And they say, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, strictly speaking, this is just a statement of fact. But we get the idea, especially given John the Baptist's response, that this statement of fact contained in it a sense of indignation and a sense of disappointment as to what is going on here in this case. There seems to be a sense in the hearts of these disciples that that this is all wrong. This is all backwards. Something is not right with this picture. John the Baptist, they say, is our rabbi. And a good rabbi he is. Why are all the crowds now going over to Jesus? Why is Jesus' ministry increasing? And why is John's ministry kind of tapering off? That seems to be the implied sentiment behind the statement. In short, they were jealous for the success of John's ministry. To say it better, we could say that they were jealous for what they would perceive to be the success of John's ministry. But this very attitude in itself demonstrates that these disciples of John did not yet grasp the true nature of John's ministry, of what John was trying to do. So John takes the opportunity here to set the record straight. And notice, notice John's humility right from the outset. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Which is to say, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from God. Notice notice what John is doing in saying that. He's taking this, this general theological truth, this truth that a man can receive nothing unless it comes to him from God, and then he applies that truth in what follows to his own particular circumstances. His circumstances as the one who was specifically sent ahead of Christ to prepare the way for Christ. He takes this general truth and then he applies it to himself. And so he calls the 
minds of the disciples, the minds of his disciples, back to this testimony that he had already given concerning Christ. And we've seen this testimony back in John chapter 1, that he confessed that he was not the Christ. Instead, he said he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one preparing the way for the Lord. In short, if John's disciples had been paying attention, they should have anticipated this moment in which these things were happening. If they'd actually been, been listening and understanding what, what was going on when John was pointing to Jesus, they should, have, they should have anticipated that something like this would have happened. Or at the very least, even if they could not have anticipated it, they shouldn't be surprised when they see things ending out like this, when John the Baptist's ministry had run its course, so to speak, and he'd been surpassed by this one who was to come. John had been very clear about the fact that this coming one was much greater than he. The one who was to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, John only baptized with water. John had said that he's not worthy so much as to untie the sandals of the one who was to come. And so, in other words, why should there be any surprise? Why should there be any indignation when the one to whom John had borne witness now has a ministry that surpasses John's own ministry? And John likens his position there in verse 29 to that of the friend of the bridegroom. John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And John is no doubt familiar with the the Old Testament imagery in which the Lord is, is depicted as the bridegroom and his people are depicted as the bride. That's why we read this morning from Ezekiel chapter 16, where we have this, this great description of how the Lord had, had, taken, had taken Israel as his people, and the, the image used there is, is that of a bride and of a bridegroom. The Lord says that he had entered into covenant with her, and certainly if you read on in Ezekiel 16, we see the unfaithfulness of the bride. But nevertheless, the Old Testament has this, has this imagery of the Lord being the bridegroom, the Lord's people being the bride. And John uses that here. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, the Lord is the bridegroom. The people are his bride. The friend of the bridegroom, on the other hand, was, in their culture, the one who was working out the the details and the arrangements between the parties so that the marriage between the bride and the bridegroom might actually occur. In their culture, the friend of the bridegroom was the one who who organized the details of the wedding and presided over the ceremony. And John sees himself in this role, helping the bride and the bridegroom to come together. And so he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John was joyful in his role, and his joy is now made full now that Jesus is on the scene. He is joyful now that people are going over to Jesus. This is, this is why he came, was to point the way to Jesus. For John, this meant mission accomplished. It doesn't mean that he somehow failed along the way. John recognizes that this is exactly what was supposed to happen. This is exactly what was meant to happen as he was sent to prepare the way before Christ, that there was going to come a day when the coming one surpassed John. And so John not only recognizes that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he also recognizes that the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, will have a wife, that the Lamb will have a people. And he is thus the 
bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And so here, in essence, John is saying, what kind of a man do you think I am? Do you think that I, the friend of the bridegroom, am going to try to take to myself that which is rightly his? I'm not the groom. I was only sent ahead of the groom in order to prepare the way before him, in order to to work out the arrangement of this marriage between the lamb and his bride, all who would repent and believe in him. He says, no, I'm not going to infringe on that which is not mine. The bride is his. I'm not going to take the bride to myself. Now, John was an honorable man in this. He, He knew his place, he knew his job, and he did not seek to usurp the authority, the privilege of Christ or the glory of Christ. Now, just to give a a real-life illustration, 10 years ago, when Ruby and I were married, my older brother was our best man. He was the one who actually carried the rings for us. Our ring-bearer in the ceremony was was our previous pastor's son, and he was three years old at the time, so we weren't going to actually entrust uh, entrust the rings to him. So my brother carried the rings, and my brother... Uh, you know, made a nice little speech for us at our reception. He was the one who went to get my old Ford Ranger and drive it up there to the sidewalk so that Ruby and I could uh, could get away on our honeymoon after uh, the reception. And my brother did a great job with, with all of those things. I would have a much different estimation of my brother's work as the best man if the day prior to our wedding at the rehearsal dinner or whatever, if he had tried to persuade Ruby to elope with him. I I would have had a much different picture of what my brother had done. There was something about that that's just not honorable, something just not decent about that. And that's what John is is getting at here, that he's just the friend of the bridegroom. He has a job to do. Once that job is completed, he can can fade off of the scene. That is fine. And he's all right with it. He sums up his answer to the disciples very nicely there in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so it is that the thing that his disciples find so disturbing is actually the very thing that makes John's joy complete. He recognizes that Jesus must increase. He must increase in glory. He must increase in the number of disciples who are following after him. He must increase in fame. He must increase in honor. He must increase in everything. Jesus must increase, and that means, therefore, that John must decrease. John gives us here a very tangible picture of humility in action. And let's consider that from a a couple of angles. First, in regard to Christ becoming greater while we become less. And secondly, in regard to a broader picture of life in general. Namely, what John says, that a man can only receive what has been given him from heaven. John's statement that he must increase, but I must decrease, is, first of all, and in context, spoken of uh, in reference to the, the scope and the, the spread of their respective ministries, in terms of the number of disciples who are, who are coming after them and following them. But nevertheless, this statement, he must increase and I must decrease, is true for every believer with respect to our Christian lives Before we are Christians, we naturally place ourselves at the center of our perception of life. We are self-seeking, we're self-serving, we are self-pleasing. As a general rule, people are naturally very selfish people. We make all of our lives 
about us. We do what we want. We make up the rules that we want to follow. Paul characterizes sinners apart from Christ in 2 Timothy 2, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4, as being lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is what people look like apart from Christ. They say, I must increase. They're conceited, they're arrogant, they're proud. It's all, it's all about them. But then when someone is born again, and when they turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, they make an acknowledgement that Christ actually is Lord, and He must become greater in their lives, and they therefore must become less. Indeed, when someone proclaims and truly believes that Jesus is Lord, this is nothing other than a statement than to say that He must increase while they themselves decrease. They as it were, have moved from a position in which, by default, they themselves were Lord, and they've moved now to a position in which they've rightly acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they begin living like He is Lord, and living like they are not Lord any longer. In this way, our conversion to Christ, in the very beginning, is the beginning of us proclaiming that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And then what begins in conversion must continue day by day throughout our Christian lives. Each day must be a day when Christ increases and when we decrease. Christ increases when He is known and loved and obeyed and honored. Christ increases when He is known because the more that Christ is known, the more that we understand just how worthy Christ is of having the preeminence in all things the more that we grasp who Christ is and what He has done, the more that we will want to love Him, the more that we will want to trust Him, the more that we will want to obey Him, the more that we will want to serve Him and glorify Him in all things. Paul tells us Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, that He's the firstborn of all creation, that by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is a glorious description of who Christ is as the eternal Son of God who became man and the one for whom and through whom all things were created. He's the head of His church, the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits of the resurrection. He's the one who has established peace with God for us by means of the blood of His cross, His blood which He shed for us, which He poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When the truth about Jesus is known and believed, who would not want to see this blessed one increase? Who does not grasp the glory of what is said here and yet wants Christ to increase? That should be us, to to grasp this truth and to see how truly wonderful and awesome Christ is. 
and to say, Jesus must increase. This is who he is. He must increase in the glory that he receives from me, in the honor which I give him, in the obedience which I give him, and everything. And who of those who know and acknowledge Christ as such would not be willing to step aside and decrease in view of such a wonderful Lord and Savior as Christ? Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, when he said, Whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. As Paul understood who Christ was, he was willing to count everything that he had attained, everything that formerly mattered to him, he was willing to count it as trash compared to the glory of having Christ. When we understand who Christ is and we embrace him as he is, our own accomplishments, our own possessions, and the things in which we have formerly boasted are more and more forsaken and we are willing to decrease so that Jesus may increase and be all in all. Now, on the one hand, this is humility. To do this is to humble ourselves before Jesus Christ, just as John was humbling himself before Christ. And this is also just placing ourselves squarely in reality and living in light of reality. It wouldn't have served John well at all if he had reflected on things for a moment and then become angry and jealous that Jesus was becoming greater and that he was becoming less. In conducting himself as he did, John was joyfully aligning himself with his calling as the one who was to prepare the way before Christ. He was also joyfully aligning himself with truth and with reality. Because the reality is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He will be glorified. He will be honored. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is reality. And the truth is that this is a grand and glorious reality. This is the best ending possible. And this is the ending which God has ordained, that Jesus is glorified. And so we can either joyfully align ourselves with that reality and join John in saying, he must increase, he will increase, I must decrease, I will decrease, or we can attempt an angry resistance. An angry resistance which is simply doomed to failure from the start and will also destroy us in the process. And so, friend, in light of that, let me just say, humble yourself before Jesus Christ. Let him become greater while you become less. Think less of yourself, less of your accomplishments, less of your goodness, less of yourself in every way. And begin to think more and more highly of Jesus Christ. The greatest honor and glory that you can give to him that you could possibly give to him is still less than what he actually deserves. As we sang this morning, bow down in the dust before him. Humble yourself before him and give all glory to him. And notice also here, John's humility in verse 27, when he acknowledges that a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. And saying that, at that particular time, John, again, was taking this universal theological truth and applying it to his own particular circumstances. 
as far as he was concerned, there was nothing for him to boast about. A man can only receive what God has given. A man can only receive what God provides. We can and should rejoice in what God provides, but we must not worry ourselves with what God has not provided. This is true in regard to fruit in ministry. Those words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7 indicate as much. Paul says, I planted, Paulus watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. This is also true in respect to earthly goods. This is true in respect to our temporal circumstances. This is true in respect to our employment, to our marital status, to the birth of children, and so on. A man can only receive what is given him from heaven. To think and conduct ourselves in this way is not giving way to fatalism, but rather this is true humility before God. We acknowledge that God's works by means, that he, his ordinary way of providing for us is through the labor of our hands. We acknowledge that God's usual way of providing spiritual fruit is through our spiritual effort. The way that people are converted is because people go and share the gospel with them. But on the other hand, what about when you work really hard and you do everything right to the best of your ability and you still lose the job? What about when you hustle and put out resumes and you fill out the applications but you don't land the job? What about when you're single and you're doing those things that are legitimate and appropriate to find a spouse, but marriage is still eluding you? What about when we share the gospel with the lost, but we see little or no fruit? What about when you pour yourself into others for their spiritual benefit and you see little or no return? Again, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. This is humility. We're not in charge of what happens to us. We're responsible for what we do we must act in obedience to all that God has commanded us and behave ourselves with wisdom according to his word. We're responsible for how we conduct ourselves, but we can't control things that are external to us. We're not sovereign. God is sovereign. And so we read in Proverbs 16:9 that the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And again, Proverbs 19:21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. This is humility. To recognize that God is in charge of things in this world and that you're not. And so in light of that, humble yourself under his mighty hand. Receive all that he gives and do not grumble when that is not what you would have wanted or would have chosen for yourself. God knows more what you need than you know what you need. And so humble yourself Receive what God gives, be faithful in all that God commands, and don't worry about the rest. Let Jesus increase while you increase. Recognize that a man can receive nothing unless God has given it to him. And that brings us then to our, our second point, which is set your seal that God is true. As the text continues in verses 31 to 36, we have here a brief discourse concerning Christ. Interpreters of the passage are divided as to whether or not this is a continuation of a quote from John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was speaking up through verse 30. Uh, some would see this as, as uh, his continued words down through verse 36 at the end of the chapter. Some would see this as the Apostle John's inspired commentary uh, concerning uh, what, what John has said and concerning who, who Christ is and so on. I would uh, personally fall in the, the latter of those two camps. But either way, we, we read here, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. And this is to say that, that Jesus is the one who comes from above and is above all. And that he who is of the earth is from the earth and therefore speaks of the earth. In other words, John the Baptist, even though he testifies of Christ, is of the earth. And he speaks of things of earth. Though his testimony was true and necessary, nevertheless there were things that John could not do. He baptized only with water. Jesus was the one who would do the heavenly work of baptizing with the Holy Spirit. John had not been to heaven and descended so as to, to give a heavenly revelation. Jesus was the one who had come from heaven, as John notes in verse 31. Jesus testifies to what he had seen and heard. He is, again, the one who reveals God the Father to us, as we've seen already earlier here in the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks of, of heavenly realities. Having been in heaven for eternity with God, he brings the revelation of God from heaven to earth. But yet, as we've seen already in this gospel, we read here in verse 32 that no one received his testimony. That is, relatively speaking, no one received his testimony. The testimony of Jesus was largely rejected by the world. Even still, there were some who received it, and those who did are described there in verse 32 as having set their seal to the fact that God is true. Those who believe the truth spoken by Christ are proclaiming their faith that God is telling the truth. They're described as having set their seal to this, that God is true. And the reason for this is given there in verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent, namely his Son, speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now notice there that the Trinitarian nature of this revelation that comes through Christ. Christ is the, the Son, beloved of the Father, and is sent by him into the world as the word of the Father to speak the words of God. God the Father has given the Son the anointing of the Spirit without measure. Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit descended and remained. Right? If you think back to the, the baptism of John earlier on in the Gospel where John baptized Jesus, he was told that the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so it was with Jesus that he, the Spirit descended and remained on him. He baptizes with the Spirit. God the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Which is to say, as Jesus himself would later say in prayer in John 17, 2, that the Father gave him authority over all flesh and to all whom you have given him that he may give eternal life. It is to say, as Jesus says in John 5, 22, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. God the Father has appointed the Son as the mediator of the new covenant. That means that Jesus now has authority over all people, authority to give eternal life to those whom God has chosen, Authority to judge on the last day. And John then sums it all up there in verse 36, where he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son 
will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now these two positions are mutually exclusive, and they both have attendant consequences that begin even now. The one who believes already has eternal life. The one who does not currently believe already lives under the shadow of God's wrath. Though the one who does not obey the Son may still be living on earth and not experiencing the complete outpouring of the wrath of God, nevertheless he stands even now under judgment. The wrath of God abides on the unbelieving. They are under condemnation, under judgment even now. And these two things are mutually exclusive. You either believe on the Son and have eternal life, or you refuse to obey the Son and the wrath of God abides on you. There's no gray area here, no middle ground, no third way whatsoever. And notice also what is strongly implied in verse 36, that faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus go hand in hand. And also, on the other hand, that unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand together. Faith that is saving faith will always bring about obedience. True believers obey Jesus. Certainly they don't do this perfectly, but nevertheless they do it truly and faithfully. We're saved by faith alone. Faith alone is what unites us to Christ. But nevertheless, there will be good works that that follow in the lives of those who believe. The teaching of the New Testament is that you either believe upon the Son and thus obey Him because of that faith, or that you disobey the Son, thereby revealing your disbelief, your lack of faith. Your, uh, Your lack of faith is shown by your lack of obedience. And so friend, recognize here in these verses at the end of John chapter 3 that God has revealed himself to us in the person of his Son. God the Father sent Jesus as a Savior, as the one who would die on the cross for our sins so that through faith in Jesus we may have eternal life, we may have the forgiveness of sins, we may have reconciliation with God. And he who believes this testimony, to use John's language here, has set his seal that God is true. In our terms, this is, this is signing off on the fact that God is true, that God is telling the truth in the revelation that he has given to us concerning his Son. And the opposite is also true. To reject Christ, to reject the gospel, is to make God out to be a liar. You're refusing to set your seal, refusing to sign off that what God says is true. And so we read in 1 John 5.10, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. To believe upon Christ is to believe that God is telling the truth because God has testified to us concerning his Son. To reject Christ in unbelief is to make God out to be a liar. It's no wonder then that the wrath of God abides upon those who make God out to be a liar, those who do not obey the Son. It is a rejection of the witness of God. This is folly. This is arrogance. This is the way of death. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape? 
if we neglect so great a salvation, after it was first spoken to us through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The gospel is God's testimony. If we refuse to believe it, we're signing our own death warrant. So today is the day to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Today is the day, if you've already done so, to continue believing in Jesus, to continue saying, he must increase, I must decrease. May that be true for all of us. Let's pray.